Well, good morning. It is a privilege for me to be here with you. I was uh, last summer in August, my family and I had the chance just to stop in and be a part of one of your services. And uh, so some of you were here then and some of you were taking uh, the time in summer to get away and enjoy the, the beautiful weather and time off. And so it is uh, just an honor for me to be here with you this morning again and to bring to you God's word that was just read. Well, would you join me as we pray just before we look at it together? Lord God, as we um, look into your word, Father, um, I am mindful that this isn't just a, a book filled with good ideas. It's not just a book filled with fables or stories or morals, but this is the very word of God. And as we read it together, as we reflect on it together, as we listen to it, we trust that through the work of your Holy Spirit that you use it to change our lives and to change the world. And so, Lord God, this morning, we ask that you would do that miracle in us again. Lord God, while we come here, many of us having already discovered the truth of Jesus and his forgiveness and new life, we recognize too, as we've already sung and heard, that, that we are still vessels in process, that we are are broken and that we are in need of your redemptive work in us, no matter how long we've known you. And so as we look at your word this morning, may it bring life to us and truth to us. And Lord God, may our hearts be open and humble and receptive to the voice of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the story that was just read to you from Matthew chapter 15, Jesus and the Pharisees are having a conversation. And, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, really love to come to Jesus with, with stories and questions and thoughts. And it's interesting in this story that when we find these um, Pharisees, often you and I have grown up in a world where we've watched a lot of films. We've watched a lot of movies. And so when you hear Pharisee, it just sounds like villain. Right? We right away come at it and go, these are the bad guys. But what I want you to know is that a Pharisee wasn't actually a, a bad guy. The word Pharisee at its root, in fact, means to separate. And this group of Jewish religious leaders, with great intention and sincerity, were trying hard to live separate from the world in which they were living. They came to Jesus and they wanted for him to live the way that they did. And it's interesting that Jesus, too, in the scriptures, speaks to us about living this way, about being separate from the world. In John chapter 15, we read these words. Jesus says, The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, and so it hates you. I'm reminded as well later on in the New Testament where in 1 John 2.15, we read these words. Do not love this world or the things it offers to you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. I think you and I could argue if we looked at the whole of Scripture that again and again, those who follow God are called and invited to in fact be a separate people. Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 2.11 direct us when he warns us as temporary Aliens and strangers, residents and foreigners, immigrants and pilgrims, different translations use all of those words. 
to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. If this is true, why was Jesus so critical of these devout spiritual leaders who were simply trying to live up to this immense sense of call? Well, in the passage that was just read, we are told that the nature of their disagreement was the age-old traditions that they held on to. Now, the truth is, is that all of us are raised with some traditions, aren't we? I suspect if I asked, all of you and your families would have traditions that you follow and that you celebrate. Sometimes we have traditions about how we greet one another, how we celebrate Christmas or special events. Churches have traditions, orders of service, particular songs that you sing at, at specific times, a special benediction, perhaps. In my family of origin, we have a tradition around birthdays. And on your birthday, we phone you, and we all get on the phone, and we sing the worst rendition of happy birthday we can muster, loudly and off-key. Tradition, in and of itself, isn't actually a bad thing. What a tradition is is simply this. It's the transmission of a belief from one generation to another. So in our passage, then, the issue isn't that there is tradition, but the kind of tradition that's referred to. Now, I don't think it would take us long to come up with some traditions or rules from our upbringing that over time we have either accepted or rejected based on our assessment of them. Sometimes we determine that something that was a tradition is no longer of any value or no longer does it make any sense. When I was a boy, I remember that one of the traditions we had is that I was not allowed to wear jeans to church. Now, don't look around. But what was interesting, and I love this as a teenager, is eventually we got to the place where my mom said I could wear jeans to church on Sunday night. Now, I was a smart enough teenager to ask, so if I can wear jeans on Sunday night, does that mean Jesus doesn't come on Sunday night? Because clearly something's different about Sunday morning. I think we all get the idea that that tradition was one that had its time and its place. What we know about the Pharisees is that they were teachers of the Old Testament law. They knew the Old Testament off by heart. The first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. But along with that, they also had another book which they had written over time called the Mishnah, which was a book which explained and interpreted all of those laws. So it was kind of like a Bible commentary. Well, between those two books together, there were 613 laws that the Pharisees sought to follow. 613 that really governed virtually every area of life. They passed this list down from generation to generation. But over time and with good intention, what happened is that these laws were being interpreted, added, and adapted in a way that was being used to justify their actions, used to hold authority over other people. And in the end, some of these rules had become an end unto themselves. Instead of just a healthy guardrail guiding one's life choices, this list had become a way of striving for, of attaining self-righteousness, of giving the right appearance to others. The list became about how you fit in. Now, Jesus addresses one of these misguided perspectives in verses 3 to 5, which were read for us when he speaks about how someone treats their parents. 
The actual law, which we all know, one of the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, honor your father and mother. But the Pharisees, in their adapting of these laws, claimed that, well, sometimes honoring your father and mother is true. If you were giving, though, or serving God, this then could supersede your responsibility to your parents. What Jesus says is that the law, when used incorrectly, can justify actions or sins, which while giving the appearance of righteousness can in fact dishonor God and void one's responsibility to their family in the pursuit of personal piety. Your age-old tradition, Jesus says, is no longer about serving God, but about appearance, about personal preference. Jesus explains this further in verses six to nine. He says this, he says, and so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. And then in verse eight, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus knows, of course, that the law itself cannot justify us. Following the rules cannot make us right with God. Galatians chapter two, verse 16 reminds us, it says, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us as well. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Jesus speaks to the real issue with the Pharisees. It's the problem of their sinful hearts. Jesus may well have been thinking in this moment of the verse from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. The Baker Evangelical Dictionary defines our heart as this, a person's center for both physical and emotional and intellectual and moral activities. Our heart is the center of all we are, it impacts all we do and say. Now, if your heart stops working, you are what? You are dead. Good. It's a bright congregation. That's wonderful. You're dead, right? If your heart stops working, you're dead. Well, Jesus turns to the crowd, and then he says to them in verse 11, he says, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, you are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. It's what your heart is revealing, the condition of your heart that tells us who you really are. The disciples don't seem to get it, so finally Peter asks, he says, can you explain this to us, Jesus, one more time? What have you, what have you just said? And so Jesus gives us those words in verse 17, where he says, what goes in comes out. And as Scott alluded to, it's basic biology. We really don't need to explain it. But then he carries on in verses 18 and 19 with these words. He says this, But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. Jesus tells us that our hearts are responsible for our words and our actions. The heart is the source of our true character and reveals the degree of our righteousness. 
And what matters to God is what's going on inside of us. The Bible would agree in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, you'll remember the story of the choosing of King David, and there it says to us this, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks behind everything you and I do. That's what matters to him most. You might come to church regularly. You might serve here. Maybe you're a part of a ministry team. Maybe you sing with the worship team. Maybe you've recently gone on a missions trip. These things can check a lot of boxes, but they don't necessarily tell us anything about the condition of your heart. Isn't this the message we discover all the way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, sin happens inside of you long before we see it outside. Long before you commit murder, you harbor anger in your heart. Long before someone commits adultery, they harbor lust internally. Long before our actions condemn us, our heart reveals what's truly going on. Up until I took this position in the spring or in, the, in January of last year, 2023, I pastored a church in Leduc just north of you. Uh, I will have to say it was a little hard for me coming up here this morning after that hockey game last night. But um, thanks be to God for his help and strength. But I pastored the church in Leduc for 29 years. And uh, so in last year, I made a decision to step away for a year, to give the church time to work through transition and leadership and all those kinds of things. And now, as this new year began, I had the opportunity to step back in, to become a congregant, to just be an ordinary part of the body of Christ in a way that I'd not been before. And what I realized is that as I was thinking about re-engaging with this congregation that I'd served and loved all these years, that with one particular individual, there was someone in the church that I was harboring anger in my heart over. And it was someone who I'd had a long-term friendship with, but who I felt often, when we weren't just being friends, didn't speak of me very well to others. And I thought about going back to church, and I realized that I was smart enough and bright enough to just make this work. I could smile and shake their hand on Sunday morning, the vast majority of people would never know that there was anything there outwardly. I would be able to be nice, right? The Bible says tolerate one another out of reverence for Christ. It does not say that, friends. The Bible says has nothing about tolerating one another, right? The Bible says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But what I realized is that I could go back to church. I could sit next to this person in a pew sing songs together, but there would be an unresolved issue that was never addressed. Now, I'm not someone who very often would say that God speaks to me through dreams, but in January of this year, one night in the middle of the night, I had one of the most vivid dreams I can remember in years. And I believe that God gave me this dream, and in this dream, this person who I was harboring anger in my heart for and I were having a conversation and our conversation turned into an argument. And as our argument began to get louder and more heated, there was a moment where I took my right hand and I reached up and I grabbed them like this, by the throat. 
It, it's not as funny once I keep going, so just give me a sec. And as we argued, I pushed them back against the wall, and then I began to push and squeeze. And I pushed and I squeezed, and I pushed and I squeezed until they quit talking. And then I began to watch the color drain from their face. And there was a moment in that dream where I recognized that I could, with the strength in my hand, squeeze the last ounce of life out of that person. And it was then that I woke up terrified. And I knew in that moment that God wanted me to deal with that. And there in the middle of the night, laying in bed, the Lord and I had a long and significant conversation. And he lifted that anger and resentment that was in my heart. Because you see, in God's kingdom, it's not okay to tolerate one another. It's not okay to pretend to be nice. God cares about what's going on in our heart. He knew that for me to be an effective part of the body moving forward, I would need to address this situation and this struggle. Knowing how to manage it would simply not do. So how do you and I ensure that we pass down the right kinds of traditions? I think there's a few important lessons we can draw from this passage. The first one is this. Outward obedience is only useful if first there is a desire for inward obedience. Now I want to say about this that perhaps there's someone here today who has never understood that Christianity is not about doing the right things or doing good things for God. Salvation and receiving God's forgiveness and new life is only something we can receive as a gift. We cannot earn our way into heaven. We can invite Christ into our life and he will become the leader of our life and by faith we can trust that he will forgive our sins break sin's power, and usher in a whole new way of life with his help, giving us assurance for this day and for every day and into eternity. But for those of you who have already invited Christ into your life, those who know him personally, my question for you is, have you let your relationship with him slide? Have you issues in your heart that you've avoided and instead substituted them for age-old traditions? It's so easy for you and me to fit in, in part, and then to forget the rest. We can come to church, we can speak the right language, wear the right clothes, do the right things, but live in bondage to sin. Several years ago, I attended a hymn sing hosted by a family in our church, and there were people who came from all over to join this hymn sing, and my point was that there were people there I'd never met before, and at the end of the evening, as we were wrapping up, there was a man in the front row who raised his hand and said, I have something to share. And he raised his hand and was allowed to share, and he said he believed that the reason so many young people are leaving the church today is because we aren't singing enough of the great hymns of the faith anymore. Now, because I didn't know him, I chose not to respond, but uh, what I wanted to do was, I, I wanted to bop him on the head, in Jesus' name, of course, but, you know, for the Lord, I wanted to just... Just give him a little tap you know, of love and affection. <laughs> uh, 
but I was frustrated, right? Could it be that the reason that young people are leaving the church is because they're not seeing enough genuine faith? They're seeing too much age-old tradition. I love the great hymns of the faith. I know many of them by heart, but that's not the point. Are we being changed from the inside out? Where is God working in us? Second thing I think we can draw from this passage. Outward worship is only meaningful when there is inward worship. Sometimes you and I come to church hoping that good music, that a great sermon, that a good visit will will give us enough to get us through another week. It's kind of like a pep talk. But Sundays can't carry us. The inward life that we must live each week has to be nurtured and addressed all the time in a real relationship with Christ. Bible reading, prayer, memorization, meditation, gathering with a small group, being a part of a Bible study. What is the point of all of these? Well, it's not to earn check marks or gold stars. It's about engaging in relationship with the living Christ. There are no points for church attendance, no special status for giving. Worship is lived out in relationship to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says these words. He says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, or you'll lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, pray by yourself behind closed doors, and pray that your Father, or pray to your Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. Third thing, outward change only lasts when there's inward change. In Ezekiel chapter 26, 36, we find these prophetic words which point us forward to Jesus. It says, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stony and stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Through the work of Jesus, we are given new hearts. The power of sin has been broken and we're no longer slaves to it. But just like our physical lives, we can develop heart disease. While sin may no longer be your master, sometimes we still want sin to be our friend. Can you hear that? When you come to Christ, the power of sin is broken in your life. It no longer controls you. But sometimes, in little places, in little pockets, we want to keep a sin. We like that thing as bad as it is for us. Sometimes we hide behind old, clever, age-old traditions. In the winter of 2019, just before COVID, I had a chance to be a part of a missions trip and a team that went to the Bahamas to do hurricane relief. And we were on a tiny little island called El Bouquet, which was a 30-minute ferry ride from the nearest island. There was no electricity left. They thought it might be a year and a half before electricity would be restored. The island not only had the wind destroy it, but the water come right over it, literally. There were houses laying on their side and 60-foot boats up on a hill. It was amazing, the power of Mother Nature. And while we were there, we worked very, very hard, carrying uh, heavy wood and metal and just moving debris and helping the people on the island just to try to find the capacity to get around. Well, when we finished our two weeks there, there was no, um, on the island I should say as well, there was no hospital, no medical clinic, no doctor. There was two American nurses who came as volunteers and would do a clinic twice a week for two hours. That was the extent. 
Well, we finished our week and a half working and we came home and the day after we arrived home, I went outside to shovel about this much snow on the front driveway. So I shoveled and as I shoveled, I realized that I had this silly ache in my left arm. And I thought, well, that's strange. And so I quit shoveling, never thought about it again. Went into the house the next morning. I went back to the rec center just down the street from our house and I put on my shorts and I decided I was gonna go for a run. And so I ran one lap of the 200 meter track and I went, that's funny, I can feel that same ache in my left arm. And so I went home and I told my wife, and you can imagine that that set a course of action into a straight line and six days later, I found myself in front of a cardiologist. And he looked at me and he said, Tim, he says, you've got a blockage in your heart it's 90%. And I realized that 10 days earlier, on the far eastern reaches of the Bahamas on an island with no electricity and no hospital and no doctor, that God was watching over me. And they put a stint in my heart. But what was crazy is you couldn't tell there was anything wrong. I was relatively active, able to do things fit and healthy by all outward accounts, but inside there was something going on that could have changed my life and my family's forever. The only good thing about being on a desert island is that digging a hole in the sand is pretty easy. It's a picture of what was taking place with the Pharisees. Their intentions were good. Be set apart, stand out, keep the commandments, which we should. But what they were passing down was missing the mark. On the outside, they looked the picture of health, the age-old traditions covering what they lacked, a real change of heart. And so let me finish with this. What's going on inside of you? Maybe what all of us can see here this morning looks pretty good. You've got their traditions down pat. Jesus is so much more for you than this. He came to set us free, and that's about our hearts. Is there anything that you know in your life that needs to be addressed? Anything you've been holding on to, excusing, denying, ignoring, choosing to live with, believing it's not going to be changed? Are there age-old traditions you're hanging on to, things you need to let go of? What is it for you? Traditions aren't bad, but they can become a distraction. As was referenced earlier by George in his prayer, I think the words of the psalmist in Psalm 51 speak to us significantly. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. My hope and prayer is that what you and I will do is pass down traditions to those who come after us, to our children and to our grandchildren. But it won't be a list of rules. It will be lives that continue to be changed by the power and work of Jesus. One of my greatest prayers as a dad is that my kids will say, I remember when my dad was less patient than he is today. I remember when he was less quick with his temper than he used to be because I can see the work of Jesus in him. May that be the tradition that we pass forward. Let's pray. God, we 
we believe that you want to continue to do your work in our lives. And so, Lord Jesus, today, if there's anything in us that, that's outstanding, that we've held on to, that we've avoided, that we've lacked the faith to trust you can change, would we reach out to you and invite you by your Holy Spirit to change our hearts again and to begin a new work so that what we pass down is the work of Jesus done by faith and by the power of your Spirit, done in us each day as we trust you more fully. Thank you, God, for your word. May that which has value take root, and may that which had none today burn away. Amen.